we're um, we're a cozy group today, so it's going to be a very communal conversation here. Because we're at the beginning of the book of Exodus, and I read it through. Was reading it through last night, the first parsha, which covers the first five chapters plus a few verses of Exodus, and it's impossible for me to choose a section. <laughs> it's impossible. It's it's such a compelling, rich, coherent four. narrative. Huh? We're here till four. <laughs> That's right. So actually, so I think what I want to do today is just start at the beginning and start reading and talking. No, we're finished with Barashis. <laughs> no, okay, we're not starting at the beginning. Starting at the beginning of the, of the second book. Oh, okay. But... But since it is the beginning of a book, I want to frame uh, our exploration a little bit. The story of the Exodus from Egypt is in the Bible, it's in the Torah for a purpose, and that purpose is explained over and over in the text itself. So what is that purpose? It's so that we might tell it to our children, tell it to the next generation. So the story itself is presented as something to be told and retold. Uh, not as, and, and this becomes the kind of, what we learn about Torah in general is that uh, it's not fixed in time, it's not then. It's uh, as Joya Timpanelli, when she comes to class, likes to say, a story starts once upon a time. And when was that time? When was not that time? <laughs> that means it's ever, ever present. And I love thinking of it that way. And so rather than having a single fixed meaning for the text, Judaism celebrates multiple readings of the text. And uh, that is what we do here, right? Even sometimes contradictory readings of the text. So I was looking on my bookshelf. I just grabbed a couple of books. Exodus and Revolution by Michael Walzer. These are just contemporary books. So. Uh, Michael Walzer is a, a political philosopher. He wrote this a long time ago, I think when I was in rabbinical school. And it completely captivated me. Um, talking about uh, the story of the Exodus as the template for political liberation movements in modern history. What's the name of the book again? Exodus and Revolution. Um, I like it. And what was the name of the author? Yeah, it's right here. Michael Walser. I won't, you know, you can... Okay, sorry. Uh, but I, these are just samples. I mean, I have other books at home... Uh, Moses as a political Moses as a political the a political leader a whole book about it. Um, here's a book called Exodus and Emancipation. I got this in the mail. A man named Kenneth Chelst is a professor of operations research in the Department of Industrial and Manufacturing Engineering at Wayne State University in Detroit, who also got his BA from Yeshiva University, where he also received rabbinic ordination. He says in his introduction, I just was just leafing through this because I've never read it deeply. Um, uh, 
Oh, let's see, where did he say this? It was so, so sweet. Um, how did a chair of a Department of Industrial and Manufacturing Engineering and a professor of operations research, the mathematics of decision-making, come to write a book about the Bible and African-American slavery? I must admit it was a long, circuitous journey, and then he goes on, but it's very sweet. So he's a rabbi, Orthodox trained rabbi, and, a, and, a, and what he does in this book is he compares biblical, the story of slavery in the Bible with the history of African-American slavery, including, and he makes analogies all along the way, including, say, brothers selling a brother into slavery, which happens in Genesis, and the way that in Africa, uh, frequently, tribes would, you know, uh, um, would sell other, capture other prisoners from other, and sell them into slavery to, uh, um, uh, um, Population growth and fears of the ruling class, uh, which, you know, the, the, the proliferation of African-American slaves was a giant problem in states like Georgia and South Carolina, where they outnumbered the, uh, uh, the white slave owners because they knew what had just happened in Haiti, for example, where the ratio of African slaves to uh, slave owners was like 30 to 1 or something like that, and that didn't work out for the white people there. And that was in 18, remember that was in 1807 or something, 1801, somewhere around there. And then the fact that Pharaoh uh, is worried about the burgeoning population of the Israelites and decides to limit their, has all kinds of strategies. So here's a whole book comparing the strategies of Pharaoh to the history of, it's, um, He, this guy winds up in Detroit, yeah. Where That's what. Yes. But I'd have to read the book to tell you. All I did was pull it off my shelf where it's been for a long time. Because it, it came to me in the mail and then captivated my. And this author is? His name is Kenneth Chelst. It's right here. You can come write it down later if you want. Or, and then another book that I've had for a long time, just to show you how many ways there are to tell and retell the story. It's called Kabbalah and, Kabbalah and Exodus by Zeb Ben Shimon Halevi, who's an Englishman named Warren Kenton, who goes by his Hebrew name. He's written a lot of books about Kabbalah and Jewish mysticism. And he wrote a whole book about how the Kabbalah treats the story of Exodus, which is, the, for him, from, from, as he says in the introduction, it's the story of the infinite soul incarnating into our bodies, being, which can be a form of enslavement, and then the path towards spiritual liberation in our physical lifetimes, right? So he, he's reading the same story, everybody. That's what I, I just want to see. So I just grabbed these books. And then I have, of course, uh, Aviva Zornberg, who we, I was talking about all through Exodus, Genesis, who wrote her book on uh, Exodus called The Particulars of Rapture. Reflections on Exodus. And uh, I just, I was reading her introduction, and it's just magnificent. Um, and will not satisfy anybody who uh, wants a um, two dimensional, who, okay, just tell me how it goes and what happens. And, but what she's doing is using the rabbinic tradition, which is multivocal, as we know. Um, and she compares the rabbinic approach to studying Torah to Freudian 
approach to personality, which is that there's a surface narrative of our lives we tell. And then this happened, and this happened, and this happened. And then if you spend enough time on the couch, you then uh, find out what's repressed underneath those layers. And uh, uh, the analogy he pursues is that the midrash, in a way, surfaces the repressed narrative, the repressed stories the, uh, in, inside the text, and it's quite fascinating. And she compares also, well, actually, she doesn't do this. I, I just was thinking about this myself, that the, one of the reasons there can't be a fixed and permanent meaning is because we are not fixed and permanent. Um, we yearn for it because our lives are flowing, time is passing, we are changing, and boy, do we want fixity. You know, that seems to be a, a, a perennial human conflict, internal challenge. And one of the, and so what I wanted to say, this wasn't Zornberg, but me, is that I compared that as I was reading her talking about it, I compared it to the prohibition against idolatry in the Torah. What is an idol? Well, when you compare it to what God is, and God reveals God's nature to Moses at the burning bush in this portion. I am becoming that which I am becoming. That is how you, or I am that I am is not what it means. Ehyeh oh. um, is in the imperfect tense. That's why I personally came up with the metaphor of life unfolding as a useful way for me to come up with an English phrase to describe Ehyeh Asher Ehyeh. I am becoming that which I am becoming. Therefore, the true nature of reality, which is God in the Torah being revealed to Moses, is that it can't be fixed. And that anyone who tries to, in human, out of human aspiration, ego, desire to try to fix reality and hold it in one place and maintain it and say, now I know, is not connected to the nature, true nature of reality. So that requires human beings to be, God, what a challenge, right? What a challenge. No wonder we keep slipping into idol, idol worship. Right? It, 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 and for, so on that meta-psychological sort of human level, uh, um, so the only way to read the Torah then is what it says in the Haggadah. In every generation, each person must view themselves as personally going from slavery to freedom. And whoever, anyone who expands upon the story is to be praised. So this is the invitation, but also the requirement of how to read the Torah in the Jewish way. And of course, because we're human beings, we, can, we will continuously want to say, I got it. That's what it means. But, that, but we change over time. We are, I am becoming what I am becoming. So if we can't, so this is the things I was reflecting on as I was reading these beautiful books today. And so, you know, I've, I, hopefully in the next few months, a book of my Torah commentaries will come out. And I'm, um, it's just held up by the publisher right now. But that's, it's fine. I just have to nag them. 
Um, and uh, I called it Turn It and Turn It, from the phrase in Pirkei Avot, where, where, which concludes the whole book of rabbinic wisdom sayings. It says, speaking of Torah, Ben Bagbag says, Turn it and turn it, for everything is in it. Grow old and gray in it, do not turn aside from it, for there is no greater reward than this. Referring to Torah. So if the, ref, if the rabbinic instruction for Torah couldn't be more explicit, turn it, hafuch, which means to, to do this, and they compare Torah to a gem with 70 facets, you know, and they also turn it and turn it as what you do with the soil, you know, to see what's going to grow. Um, all, of that, all of that imagery is so beautiful for me. Like the soil, because if you don't turn the soil, nothing's going to grow. That's right. Reminds me of the bad shape my garden is in. Exactly. But then there's the no-till philosophy. <laughs> the no-till philosophy. But how do you keep the soil aerated is a question. Yeah. You know, you've got to... So, um, but if you're tending a garden, you want the soil to be, to be aerated, not compressed. Right, not compacted. Compacted is another description of making it fixed mm -hmm. rather than um, uh, filled with motion and, and life and air and fluid. Ah, so that's what I was thinking about today. And so we're finished? Yeah. <laughs> so with that in mind, rather than focus on a particular line in the text, I just wanted us to read it and we can pause at any moment to turn it and reflect it, and let's just see. We won't. I unfortunately, I don't think we'll get through all the chapters because it just gets doesn't. It doesn't let up for me. This kind of like um, the the way this story grabs me. Um, so let's do that. You'll find it on page three forty six. That's the beginning of uh, Shmuel. Just as an aside, please. Blaze sent out a beautiful email quoting Rabbi Sachs of Great Britain. He actually, I think, lives in New York right now. I think he's uh, teaching at NYU. Oh, I'm really? Not, I'm not sure. Or at least he's back and forth because he has a he's got this special lecture position at NYU right now. A, a beautiful commentary on on. Uh, Moses' birth and being put in the river and being found by the handmaidens mm -hmm. of the princess of Egypt and being raised. Let's, ra let's raise it, because we're going to get to that right away. And let's talk about what Rabbi Sachs has to say about it. Uh, uh, and I'm just thinking about, um, I'm reflecting, I've been trying to think, you know, I want to write something to the congregation, given that it's the end of this calendar year. And, what do I say? <laughs> what do I say this year? You know, in like a what? What? Uh huh. And I'm thinking about the uh, the challenge of again desperately wanting to come up with the fixed piece of 
nugget of wisdom that's going to like get us through or fix things or and um, and at the same time that nugget may be that the God we worship is not something that we that we have to continually be striving and discerning and flowing and and it's uh, tiring and hard and distressing I wonder what I'll say <laughs> I'll sit down tomorrow morning and write something yeah when I was doing field work in Indonesia and I was trying to talk to people who had gone into trance and had spirit possessions it was really interesting because I asked them you know what did you experience and nobody would answer they all claimed to have total amnesia because by asking what did you experience, I was implying that they were still identified with the person who had been possessed. Oh. So what happened was it was only once I learned the word becoming, and I said, what happened during the becoming experience? And then they would tell me all kinds of things. That's cool. Isn't that cool? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. So I'll start reading, but maybe others will read too. So these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each coming with his household. Reuben, Shimon, Levi, Yehuda, Issachar, Zvulun, Benjamin, Binyamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The total number of persons that were of Jacob's issue came to 70, Joseph being already in Egypt. Joseph died and all his brothers and that generation, all that generation. And the Israelites were fertile and prolific. They multiplied and increased very greatly so that the land was filled with them. Hmm. Feel free, you know, anywhere to jump in. A new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, look, the Israelite people are much too numerous for us. Let us deal shrewdly with them so that they may not increase. Otherwise, in the event of war, they may join our enemies in fighting against us and rise from the ground. So they set taskmasters, taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built garrison sites for Pharaoh. Cities. Garrison cities. Uh, cities for Pharaoh. Pitom and, and Ramses. And Ramses. Yeah. But the more they were oppressed, the more they increased and spread out, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. Yes. Yes, Miriam. Something came to me at that. In there, it's like they couldn't believe. It's like when you hear about Jews in Europe why they didn't act. That's what said because because they liked their, their lives. It sounds so much like what people would say. Said, well we we thought they you know we would be okay. So we didn't speak up. That's what it felt like exactly. Like, uh -huh. Well we were doing okay so we didn't speak up. And beside yes, I mean I was listening to the radio today. Who becomes a refugee? Oh I heard that too. Yeah, who becomes a refugee? Somebody whose life has become unbearable. Why else would you leave home? The only, the only um, uh, uh, 
or if you have an aspiration. That's the other reason people right. leave. Right, Abraham gets a call, go to the land that I will show you. You know, Zionists felt that they had something that they were aiming towards. You know, people, I'm sure many people have left their homes with hopes of, you know, hopes of make, making it. Everyone who came to, the, to America. But many of them were leaving because of, but both. who left? It was both. Mm-hmm. I mean, between the poverty and the, um, the, the physical danger to their lives and the oppressive, you know, governments they lived under. So anyway, so... But initially, they said, oh, this will pass, this will, you know, it won't affect us, we're fine, we're safe, even in Russia, you know, they were safe. Yeah. Safe, and then suddenly, uh, Yep, yep. So this is going to be, so one of the things why this story is so amazing is because it's true about the nature of uh, tyranny, of oppression, of subjugation, of um, Pharaoh has to deal shrewdly with them. Um, And so what did they do? Uh, Verse 13, the Egyptians ruthlessly imposed upon the Israelites. Vayavidu mitzrayim et b'nei Yisrael b'farach. The various labors that they made them perform ruthlessly, they made life bitter for them with harsh labor at mortar and bricks and with all sorts of tasks in the field. So the Hebrew word ruthlessly is farach. Vayavidu mitzrayim et b'nei Yisrael b'farach. And this word doesn't come up too often. The other place it comes up is in uh, Leviticus in Parshat Bahar, where it said, you know, the, the Bible does not outlaw slavery. The Bible outlaws farech, ruthless treatment. Slavery is part and parcel of this ancient world. So the issue is how do you treat your slaves? And uh, so this word farech becomes very important in, 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 uh, in Torah. Um, there's a midrash that says, and again, with the typical wordplay, uh, that Vayavidu Mitzrayim et B'nei Yisrael B'farach, the Egyptians ruthlessly imposed upon the Israelites. But if you read it, Vayavidu Mitzrayim et B'nei Yisrael B'farach, it means, um, and the, it, Egypt succeeded in enslaving the Jews with soft speech, soft words. And the rabbis go at great length to explain how, in that classic, you know, metaphor of turning up the heat little by little until you don't realize you're you're boiling, of how Pharaoh would go out into the fields with the Israelites and say, "Come, let's make a few bricks." And they, this is not in the text, right? This is the subtext. How did they do it? The rabbis want to say, "Wait, how did they do this? How did they take a whole population and just like..." You know, we know the Nazis followed this playbook, right? First, you just say, well, you can't do this, or we're restricting that, or, you know, and then the story of the laws, uh, the, the, the laws of the 1930s are a uh, well-documented um, description of how you tighten the screws if, uh, without necessarily 
throwing everyone without setting off the alarm. That's right. So the rabbis anticipate this in how they describe the way Pharaoh basically snookered. Uh, uh, what's the? It's not exactly the word I was looking for, but well, almost like seduced. Su- yeah, seduced them into into a situation that then was untenable. That's right. So I'm thinking that somehow they're thinking, I can just see them thinking, oh, we're better than the, the, the laborers, the Egyptians, because we haven't labored. Mm-hmm. So we haven't been the laborers. Who have been the laborers has been basically the Egyptian populace. And so it's like, so I can see where it can be really seductive to say, oh, they're giving us, they're, they're, um, Appreciating our talents, <laughs> right? They're appreciating uh-huh. our intelligence. They're they're using us as skull, you know, that as resources, as as opposed to, you know, I mm-hmm. mean, and, and it works. It works. Teachers use it all the time. <laughs> mm-hmm. Thank you. The rabbis also ask, how did the Israelites become predisposed to allow this to happen? Right? That's another question that the text doesn't address. It, this is just, but in the rabbinic method, uh, they look at a, they again will do a close, close reading. And they say, hmm, they look at verse 7, and it says, The Israelites were fertile and prolific. They multiplied and increased very greatly, so the land was filled with them. And then um, it says in verse 12, But the more they were oppressed, the more they increased and spread out, vayakutsu, the Egyptians were yakutsu. They were disgusted, like they, like, that's what the word means. So, where do we see this language of filling up and spreading out and covering the earth? We hear it about in the creation story about the creepy crawly, all the creatures who swarm over the earth, and we hear it about the locusts who swarm over the earth. So, uh, what the rabbis say is that. The Israelites forgot who they were. They be, they lost their, their some some human factor, their their sense of heritage, their sense of vision. They were seduced by the good life they were living in Egypt and lost track of their aspiration, of the God they worshipped, of the promises given to Abraham and. You know, and, and of Abraham himself, who said, you know, per, who was commanded to pursue justice. So the rabbis also talk about, well, what predisposed the Israel? What did they forget? And they expand this. They stopped circumcising, is one of the midrashim. No, they're, they're, they're painting pictures of how do you forget who you are so that you might find yourself uh, having lost your center, lost your moral compass, lost your, and so this is another thing that the rabbis discuss, and I'm sharing this all with you so that we know that we are also free to discuss this. And and also free to lose our center. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, I I don't remember where I read this, so as to why did uh, God impose slavery on us in in, in Egypt, and I, I think there were 
two possibilities, more than that. Yes, two, yes. Right. But two possibilities that I remember were, one, that they had lost their moral compass and they wanted to be more like the Egyptians and they weren't right. doing what this breed, you know, that this covenant, this covenant had right. and all that. And so it was more of a, I don't think they used the word punishment, but... Consequence. Yes. And then the other was not because of punishment, but more um, if we as Jews, as in Israel, uh, would live through slavery and become slaves ourselves, then we would be more sympathetic to other people who go through that kind of suffering. That's right. Um, so completely different. But, but they're both true. Yeah. They are both true uh, because not everybody survives the traumas that life hands them. Either they become less than the full human that um, they could, that the, the divine image in, that is in with each of us, which is our, our potential, uh, can get forgotten and lost. Or if, if we're fortunate and not, whatever all the other factors are, <clears throat> we can survive that experience and then integrate it into knowing that we must never treat other people that way, the way we were treated. But it's not a slam dunk. That's not how it works. Plenty of people who get smashed, we know, the, we, we, we know either just try to protect their own or worse, become abusers of other divine images around them. I mean, the, this is not a, there's, there's no guarantee in, in this story, even though the story wants us to keep hoping. Yeah. Um, I'm just wondering if there's any connection or what it might be between unchecked population growth and um, procreation, how that sort of, what the ramifications of that might be, and, you know, there's obviously uh, certain religious people who do that. I would put it in a different frame. I would say that, it, I, would, I would frame it this way. I would say that in the ancient world, unchecked population growth was not a problem. Right because they were struggling to keep their numbers up most of the time. Right. But how are we modern people who are faced with, the, with now with the, the un... And the un what was it called when there are consequences that you... Unintended. Unintended consequences of our ability to keep people alive, right, because of our ability to grow more food than we ever have before, our ability to um, keep babies alive, and keep people alive way more than we ever have before. And I'd say another factor is um, um, uh, oh, I forgot what I was going to say. So it's, anyway, we now have we now have, have this amazingly, shall we say, beautiful problem of having succeeded in in in, uh, in ensuring the proliferation of our species. So now we would take our 21st century view and look at this story and maybe spin a new midrash about th right. that might relate to that. I mean, did you hear the people talking about space-faring colonies now in order to keep the human species alive? I've been hearing about that since I was 10 years old. But I mean, it's like, it's like, it's come up, it's come up now. 
yes. colonies yes. on Mars because yes. we're not going to be able to survive here. Yes. Blah blah blah. Why yep. Why don't we just solve the problems on Earth before we start spending well, all that there money are, on Well, there's, there's one side of the argument. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. I mean, and the folks who don't want to fund NASA because are the because um, we have problems of just feeding the people who are like we and the folks who say if we don't aspire to you know in the human way to grand imaginative solutions. Well, so I don't know. It's got to be yes and. Yeah. It's got to. It's I mean, got to be. It's just interesting that you know people are really now working on this in a serious yeah. way, which is kind of disturbing. <laughs> it's all disturbing, but but we're living at a moment that I don't think ever existed before in human history, uh, where we both understand the consequences of sharing one planet and are also faced with the consequences right, right. at the same time. Uh, uh, it's a Pretty overwhelming for me. Um, Miriam? Yeah, my grandfather came from a family where there were 13 children. Right. And he lived in the uh, South Dakota. And from all that, and many families had many children because they didn't know how many children would live. Right, and children were also the economic engine of the family. Yeah, they were, absolutely. And if they didn't have enough, they couldn't do what they needed to do out in the prairies and grow and, and all that. Right. From what I've read, as the as 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 infant mortality rates go down, many people choose to have fewer children. And, and as that as it happened, but because of my grandfather, there were thirteen. They may each have just one or two, but that makes well yes. <laughs> well, like I said, the moment we're living in is where the the graph goes like this, and we're living in that moment. Mm-hmm. On every, so many different variables. With it. it's, it's, the question is how do we navigate? How do we keep our? How do we do it? That's the question we face right now. I, I think about it all the time. I'm sure most of us do. And what yeah. happens if we don't have kids because the population is aging? So, who's going to grow up and? There are no simple solutions there here. There are no simple solutions. Uh, Multifaceted. Um, this, I don't want to get off on too much of a side thing, but um, there's an incredible book I, I recommend. It's been around for quite a while. Um, I'm trying to remember. Dan Quaid, I think, is the name of the author, and the, the book is called Ishmael. Oh, yeah. oh, I remember this. It's a fabulous book. It's a fabulous, it's a, it's a mind-bending, changing book. And, and I often think of it in this regard because what, what this book teaches in a very unusual way, we get over that quickly and then go forward with it, um, is, is that looking at humans as just another species on the planet and how species get more numerous as they're able to produce uh, or, or access, uh, not produce, or the other species. Reproduce? Access food. resources. Access food, basically it's about food resources and shelter and whatnot, but mostly about food and how 
you know, because humans have figured out how to do this, you know, not just go gather or kill and get, but to produce food and all of that that's involved with that, um, they have very much unbalanced the planet. And it's, it's very sobering. Um, yes. And, you know, since you, you went to, you know, how they became so, they multiplied so much and then it became a problem. This book reveals that problem in a whole other way. Mm, thank, you. thank you. Thank you, thank you. Very disturbing though. Yeah, well, how do, yes, because it's a very disturbing moment. Uh, we'd have to be kind of, kind of unconscious not to realize that, and yet it's still great to be alive, and that's the amazing thing for me. Okay. Verse 15. The king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, saying, when you deliver the Hebrew women, look at the birth stool. If it is a boy, kill him. If it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, fearing God, did not do as the king of Egypt had told them. They let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing, letting the boys live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Oh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They are chayot. They are animals. Uh, before the midwife can come to them even, they've given birth. So, and God dwelt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and increased greatly. And God established households for the midwives because they feared God. So then Pharaoh said, charged all his people, saying, Every boy that is born you shall throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Mm. One of the things Aviva Zornberg spends a lot of time talking about in her treatment of Exodus, is that whereas in Genesis, women characters are constantly present through the, 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 pretty much the entire book um, and are actors, important actors. Uh, in Exodus, women are incredibly present in these first couple of chapters. And then we hear almost nothing from women characters um, for the rest of the book. And Miriam sings at the sea. She's the only one, though. Mm -hmm. And after then at the end cross, of the book, and then... After they cross, hmm? I think Zipporah is mentioned again, maybe, but... Right, Zipporah gets mentioned again. Nothing much in Leviticus, for sure. And then in uh, the book of Numbers, we hear at the end of the book of Numbers, when they arrive at the shores of the... Jordan, banks of the Jordan, the, the daughters of Tzalofchad, right. mm -hmm. who say, we want our land holding. Mm -hmm. But there's this giant, um, yes. giant section where the women are, we don't get to talk about women characters. She, she points this out. Uh, and um, uh, there, there is a... Um, there are many midrashim. The rabbis notice this, of course, and discuss it. I won't. I will go into it in future, future uh, parshas. But that was something I was reading about in her introduction that was very striking to me. Uh, so, as we know, yes, Bob. And then, uh, it, it, there's a little bit of interesting irony here, and 
verse 22, where Pharaoh, said, Pharaoh charged all of his people, saying, every son that is born you shall cast into the Nile. Right. To kill them. Yeah. But Moses was saved because he was cast into the Nile. Yes. I, that irony is meant to be there, yeah. Yeah. Yes, John? I'm just really um, appreciating the midwives' uh, successful first try of averting Pharaoh's uh, energy in the direction of killing the boys by saying, well, they're animals. Right. And that re resonated with the Egyptians such that it wasn't until later that they had to get heavy and say, okay, now we're serious. Right. So how, why does that resonate? Because they were very clever to say something that was just right for these racists. Exactly. Yeah. So think about Americans, this book, uh, Exodus and Emancipation, and think about the, the only way you can enslave people is by and treat them as less than human is by coming up with a rationale that makes them less than human. Mm -hmm. It's the only way you can do it. Mm -hmm. You have to dehumanize them. You have to make them subhuman, mm -hmm. or you won't be able to uh, yeah. uh, rationalize mm -hmm. what you're doing to an entire body of people. Unfortunately, the Nazis were very good at that. Mm -hmm. uh, that was, this, this is the playbook. And manifest destiny. Oh, these are just animals, these Native Americans. We just kill them. Right, they're, they're savages, mm -hmm. right? They are lesser beings. Mm -hmm. and, but go anywhere in the world. Right. But the Nazis, the Nazis, who are our 20th century masters of dehumanization and oppression, uh, um, the playbook is all right here. Um, uh, this, is a, this, is, this is how it happens. Uh, yes, Barbara. I mean, if I was Pharaoh, I would, the, the, to me, it would make more sense if you wanted to stop people from multiplying to get rid of the women. The huh. I mean, you know, they're the vessel. That Good I point. I never thought of that. Yeah, I, I was wondering, too. Well, yeah, I know, you, know. you know, the guys can have all that seed all they want. <laughs> I was thinking that, too, and I, I was trying to figure out why did they choose the guys. So I thought, well... Because I guess, you know, a guy could sire lots of children, whereas women, you know, you had to wait. Well, I think he's afraid of uh, military insurrection. Yeah. I think it says they're going to become a fifth column mm -hmm. and rise up and fight with our enemies. Mm -hmm. And I think in that context, the mm -hmm. males were the right. soldiers. Yeah. That's what I think. Mm -hmm. But it's a good question because I think what it says is that Pharaoh... In Pharaoh, as all tyrants do, underestimates to their own um, uh, sowing the seeds of their own downfall the power of the feminine. Because um, the, the, in this case, let me just continue the analogy. Um, God is becoming what is becoming the midwives, you know, the, it's the women who are the vessels of life, right? And who bear it and who nourish it and who nurture it and who raise it. And it's almost as though um, they're, they're more connect, that, that, that is more connected to the nature of yod heh and of reality than the tyrannical 
and in this case, very masculine desire to control, own, and fix reality, right? I, that, that making oneself into the God. Um, it's not that, again, I don't, I don't think we have to go say this more than by just saying it. That doesn't mean that some women don't behave that way, and doesn't mean that some men aren't nurturers of life. But if we think about this, this masculine principle of building garrison cities and controlling populations and owning, you know, being in charge, being the general, as opposed to what a midwife does, um, which is serve life unfolding. To be a midwife is the most gracious way of saying you're, if you're, if you're a midwife for something, you're bringing it into its full existence, keeping it alive, nurturing it. And so I love, personally, that the king and the midwives are the first standoff because it almost sets up the whole, uh, the, the, the whole paradigm of what tyranny and enslavement is. Um, Marka? And also, I just want to say that there's an unconscious assumption about that paradigm for this kind of uh, dehumanization to work, which is that animals are not that important. Oh, you're right. They're like beasts. They just give birth in the field, and like uh, we can't even get there in time. So do you want to say anything else about that? Or? It just seems like it's another negation of the natural world completely, and again, that sort of masculine driving control domination you know if, if that extends to animal and it'll just strikes me too though for people to be dehumanized like that we already need to have animals being discredited ah, you know i understand i want to say a couple things about that um so here's the people the 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 children of israel are pastoral Right, they domesticate. They have their domesticated animals, and they um, uh, uh, raise them for their own livelihood. Right, that again doesn't have to be an evil activity. There, we could certainly argue that animals well cared for in the domesticated say, setting might much prefer that over a life on the savanna. <laughs> right, you know, you're you're safe. You. you so, so it's not, it's a symbiotic uh, relationship that can be good. It's when it's done with ruthlessness and cruelty. Dehumanizing, we need a different word. Yeah. De what? De, 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 sanctifying. Yeah, that every life is sacred. So yeah. if you, if it becomes, and again, this moves us into the analogy of industrial production. If it becomes right. an object only of, of uh, for for um, uh, uh, for utility, and loses any sense of its own sanctity as a creature of God. Uh, that's that's when you become a pharaoh or a tyrant over animals as well. Yeah. yeah, thank you. And then that then that leads me to an interesting thought, which is that you know that Moses grows up in Pharaoh's palace, right? Or not exactly, as we'll see. Uh, not exactly, but, and then when he goes out to Jethro and marries Zipporah, when he runs away, what does he learn to become? Shepherd. A shepherd. Right. And so, again, the Midrash doesn't miss this. 
And they say, Moses had to train as a shepherd so that he could learn to be a good shepherd of his people. And they go further. When, does Moses, when Moses sees the burning bush, um, all it says is, he says, he says, I must look at this site. I must look and see what this is. And God says, Moses, you're standing on holy ground. But the Midrash says that a little lamb ran away from the flock and Moses chased after it in order to make sure it was safe. And at that point, God said, Moses is ready now. Isn't that beautiful? He had taken on the role of the shepherd. Of the shepherd, of the midwife. Mm-hmm. Of right. the right of the one who brings these babies out of there, mm-hmm. you know, brings brings. If he's got a flock, he's the shepherd's responsible for birthing these <coughs> babies. The shepherd is also a midwife, right. yeah. cares for them, surrounds them. So again, I'm calling that a, a um. Let's the word midwife is beautiful, beautiful, and it's not restricted to 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 females. You know, it's we're talking about a principle. Um, that stands in opposition to the principle of tyranny and control that Pharaoh represents in the story. So the God we worship is the God of life. What does that mean? And how do we put ourselves into the service of that principle? And that for me is answering some of my questions about what do we do right now in this world. No, we can't control the outcome. But we can continue to serve ehyeh asher ehyeh by being by being nurturers of life. That's about it. Yeah. I think that every culture has a story where someone has to become a shepherd or becomes a shepherd. I mean, Jesus. The story of Jesus is the shepherd, the good shepherd. He, that was some of the things God was raised. He was called the good shepherd. Right. That he takes care of. And nurtures, and so I think. And the other thing I had thought about in China, they did just the reverse. Yeah, I was thinking that too. That kill the girls, or you know, get rid. And in India as well. Yes. Um, uh, kind of short-sighted, isn't it? Yes, (laughs) and when the boys grew up, there were no girls. I know. (laughs) Well, but and those so, so um, the 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 D. the um, the tendency of of uh, misogynist or not misogynist word of the tendency of our sexist regimes to 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 make women's lives less valuable than men's lives. Um, so I'd say that makes people that's that's in the Pharaoh department. Yeah. Even though Pharaoh's not Pharaoh, dis, I would say in this case Pharaoh discounts them so much. That he's not even worried about them. That he's not even worried about them, and they become, I would say, his downfall. Because what's going to happen next? Well, a baby's going to be born who is going to overturn the regime. And that baby is going to be rescued and nurtured exclusively by women, and not just women, but by the one he dis- the women that he thinks lives are not important, including his daughter. That's where Rabbi Sachs's 
commentary comes in where he talks about Pharaoh's daughter. Uh, can, can anyone who read it uh, uh, say any more about it? Did, what did you glean, Bob? Ask me again. I'll ask you again. Um, so Pharaoh's daughter uh, um, is, uh, it raises this child under Pharaoh's nose. She, she enables the child to be raised. She doesn't raise the, the child. Mm -hmm. That's the right. The child's mother raises the child with the blessing of Pharaoh's daughter. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, then, and then when the child is old enough and has been weaned, the, child can, uh, the Pharaoh's daughter adopts him and raises him in the palace. So the, for me, the kind of overarching story there is that Pharaoh's blindness, uh, inability to even see the value of the girls, they're not even worth killing, uh, is the seeds of his own destruction. Because he also then would, by that, by that, in that interpretation, not understand that his that his daughter or that these midwives might be smarter than him, might understand a different principle than he's trying to enact. Pharaoh is the archetypal tyrant, uh, but not just political tyrant. Anyone who has decided that you count and you don't, right? You're you're worthwhile to me. You're not. Certainly in this congregation, we're trying and doing our best to treat everyone who comes in the door as having inherent dignity and value. Um, there's another thing in Perkevot, uh, I'll have to look it up, where I don't remember which rabbi says it. Remember that there is no person that doesn't have his or her hour and no thing that doesn't have its place under the sun. Oh, it says, do not discount any person or any event because there is no person that doesn't have uh, his hour and there is no, nothing that doesn't have its place in the sun. Uh, so when we play God, we blind ourselves to a much, that, to the, we blind ourselves because we're, we're actually not in charge. There's so much more going on than we could possibly in charge of. Um, when I'm overwhelmed and I just want to go to the store, I just need something at the store. Yeah. And I'm totally overwhelmed. I have decided I have to sit in the car before I go in because I don't want to go in and be inadvertently abusive. Mm -hmm. And that's why now when these places have these self-checkout places, sometimes it's easier. Oh, the self-checkout. <laughs> then I don't have to... Try to be nice today. <laughs> right. But it's also, they also take away their jobs. Yes. Exactly. So it's like I have a conflict here. But, um, but I had a great... Yesterday, I go into Price Chopper, and I, I worked it out because it was my day of not seeing anybody. But I go in, and who I bump into is but Ellen Yehovah. <laughs> That's my wife. Yeah. And I, I was so glad that I was um, ready to be in the world. Because, I mean, but anyway, but that is that is a struggle that I do. I have to be honest, is that I, that there's sometimes I'm so overwhelmed, I do not take it to people fully. 
Oh, here it is. Ben Azai would say, do not disparage anyone and do not shun anything, for there is no person who does not have his hour and no thing that does not have its place. Isn't that beautiful? Yes. Um, that's from Pirkei Avot. It's in the same one as Ben. It comes after Ben Zoma, who Ben Azai and Ben Zoma are paired up a lot. Ben Zoma said, "Who is truly wise? One who learns from all people. Who is truly mighty? One who conquers one's own passions. Who is truly wealthy? One who rejoices in what they have. Who is truly honored? One who honors all creatures." And who is truly rich? Who is truly rich? Who rejoices in their lot. Okay, I needed this. Thanks, guys. Okay. So, Shifra and Puah. Um, let's go on to chapter two. I just have one question. Yeah, please. In, um... Chapter, oh, did you say let's go on to chapter 2? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, then, then my question is later on. Okay, chapter 2. A certain man of the house of Levi went and married a woman of Levi. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw how beautiful he was, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she got a wicker basket for him and caulked it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child into it and placed it among the reeds by the banks of the Nile. And his sister stationed herself at a distance to learn what would befall her. Miriam. Mm -hmm. Though she's not named in this instance. But she, we know her as Miriam from later in the story. By the way, um, in verse 2, for those, uh, it says... Vatahar isha vateled ben, and the woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. Vatere oto kitovhu, that he was good, and this echoes Genesis. God looked and said, "It is good," and we don't have this kind of phrasing too often. So I just picture this beautiful baby, like, and and I I hear the echoes of Genesis. Do, do you know what I mean? And. Um, how can you? You have to do what you, as when you, how could you? You have to. This is good. Um, and again, our God said the world is good. Hid for three months. Um, okay, verse five. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe in the Nile while her maidens walked along the Nile. It's a completely women's only scene here. <laughs> Right? Yeah. The mother, the, the sister, the princess, mm-hmm. the princess's maidens. It's and Moses. And the little and baby, the baby boy. Mm-hmm. Right. And the river. And I'm, I'm going to say, and the river, right. Pharaoh, you know, I read a great quote in Aviva Zornberg uh, that you take a snapshot of a river, but that's not the river. The river is the opposite of a snapshot. And uh, so if this is all about life. So this baby floating on the river of life, surrounded by the givers and nurturers of life, and Pharaoh's oblivious. <laughs> oblivious. That's, that's the... That, yeah. Yes, Miriam. Parents have been so criticized. How could they bring their children 
Mm, 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 up the through the, the immigrants, through this mm. horrible conditions. How could they do that to their children? Not taking in. No parent would do that if they didn't have to. All right, you could say the same thing. You know, how could she, she put her Possibly. child on, on the Nile to, to meet whatever fate? Well, because the, the, the alternative was not. Oh, my God. Okay, well, you'll forgive me, but um, on um, when this uh, seven-year-old girl died of, was it dehydration, I think? They claimed that it's the parents had not known. Well, and then I watched, I was watching the news, and, and they showed a clip of Fox News of them saying something like this, well, the, look at this parent, what are they doing? And... That was the commentary, right? But it's like they work for Pharaoh. You, you know, they work for Pharaoh. They work. They and and. Um, I mean, prolific, and they're 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 basically saying that these people who are coming in are animals. Are animals, right? They're 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 doing this to themselves. They're stupid. They're right, right, right. This is how you do it. Enemies, the fifth column, not worthy. All the things yeah. that doesn't have mean no regard for a baby. No regard yeah, for baby. their babies. Look how they're treating their babies, right? Rapists, so rapists, murderers, and drug dealers. Rapists, murderers, and drug dealers. Right. All it's all Dirty. right. It's right out of the play. It's right out of this playbook. Right out of this playbook. That doesn't mean we know what the best policy should be, but we know what should be informing how we treat other people. Um, and uh, so, verse six. Oh, no, verse 5. Well, she spied the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to fetch it. When she opened it, she saw that it was a child, a boy, crying. She took pity on it and said, this must be a Hebrew child. Because Duh. it must be a Hebrew because no mother would put their child at this mm -hmm. in if it wasn't in you know, mm -hmm. concerned. Mm -hmm. There's another way that she knew it was a Hebrew child. It was naked. <laughs> I was circumcised. Um, no, it wasn't. Uh, it, he might have, well, there are midrashim about this. Did she know it was a Hebrew child because it was circumcised? Or, here, let's see what the note down here. Um, 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 uh, Hebrew child, probably because of his clothing and not because he was circumcised, they say here. For circumcision was most likely practiced by the Egyptians also. Uh, okay. We don't actually, we, we know, I, I mean, know. this is not a fact story. Know that. <laughs> right. This, so, again, all we have is she says, this must be a Hebrew child. And then we get to tell stories about it. <laughs> right? Maybe because, but if she recognized it because of its, circumc because of its circumcision, or if she recognized it because she had put two and two together yeah. and no Egyptian uh, parent needs to yeah. float yeah. their yeah. baby in a basket yeah. down the yeah. Nile, yeah. the same thing motivates her. So uh, the reasons, the, yeah, maybe she had all of those reactions. Right. But she had compassion. But she had compassion, and that's what's core to this. Yeah. yeah. Uh, then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get you a Hebrew nurse to suckle the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter answered, Yes. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take to the mother, 
Take this child and nurse it for me, and I will pay your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed it. So that's what happens next. Uh, Moses gets to be with his mother. It's amazing. Yeah, really. Um, and she gets paid. From tragedy. So there you go. This is even better. <laughs> now, let's write a modern midrash just about, um, just about uh, um, uh, Pharaoh's daughter's uh, enlightened policy here about nursing parents. Yeah. yeah. My question that I had earlier got answered. Okay. I like that. I never noticed. I never thought about that before. But here's something else that we don't think about too much because we always think about Moses growing up in Pharaoh's palace and that's the right. sort of main picture we have of it. But it says, When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter who made him her son. She named him Moses, explaining, I drew him out of the water. Fascinating. How old is this kid? Yeah, yeah. So he had... We don't know. It just says, Yigdal. It doesn't say like it says about Isaac, when the child was weaned, then we would guess he's three or something, two or three. But it says when he grew, and then in the next, uh, in verse 11, just so we can see this, and I, I wondered about this when I was reading it. And in those days, it says sometime after that, but it just means, and in those days, Moses, and Moses grew some more. So he grows and gets brought to Pharaoh's daughter, and then he grows some more. But we don't have any, there's no, how old is it? It's all left to our imagination. And it doesn't say about Pharaoh questioning if he has a daughter, she doesn't have a husband. Right. Well, we get some hints that he's definitely a strong adolescent, at least. Oh, in the second part, but how old is, but it says, for, there's two when the child grew, uh, Joan, one in verse 10, when the child grew, Oh. Uh-huh. And then, <clears throat> in verse 11, when Moses had grown up. Right. So, it's not clear to me. It's not giving me anything to, much to go on, right? Um, but also, we, we have to glean that he, was, he knew who he was. He, knew he, he was old enough to know he was a Jewish boy. Uh, yeah. So Moses, Moses, maybe Moses knew who he was while he was growing up in Pharaoh's palace. He had to know because the next thing we see is uh, he went out to his kinsfolk. That's right, his kinsfolk. Okay, so so in this reading, Moses must have known that he was an Israelite. And uh, yet he's growing up in Pharaoh's palace. And he's been given an Egyptian name. Ramesses, Moses, it's an Egyptian name that, now in, in the story they give, they give it a Hebrew etymology, for I drew him out of the water, Mishitihu, but uh, Ramses and is, means the son of Ra, so Moses means son, in S-O-N, in Egyptian name. <clears throat> That's interesting, and the fact that his, the Pharaoh's daughter is the one who names him. Na- who names people in Torah? It's like the parents name the kid. It's fascinating. What a character Moses is that again lends itself to, you know, an analogy I've, I've shared before. And there's a whole other midrash forming in my head is what did they call him at home before she named him Moses? What was his name before he was named? 
Yeah, That's he had a, a name. Story. It's a play. So. It's a musical. The, <laughs> but Bonnie. Keep you late. Keep you late half an hour. Bonnie, I, I was reviewing the Midrashim about this, not exhaustively because I didn't have time, but. <clears throat> and so I can't place exactly where I was reading this, but one of the rabbinic Midrashim is that, says that because of Pharaoh's daughter's righteousness, she was given the privilege of naming Moses. So they're aware of it too, uh, that you, this should have been the mother's prerogative. Right. And yet, so then that can lead us into a whole mansion full of um, rooms about Moses and the conditions under which he was raised that also predisposed him to be able to lead the children of Israel. Well, somebody's got to write this. Yeah, somebody's got to write that story. Yeah. Right. Like um. Uh, uh. Yeah. Ramos, something about you said something about Ramses. Ramses is Ra, M S E S in English. And it means it means son of Ra. Ra is a god. Of Ra, I was thinking rock. No, no, sorry. Moses gets the water out of the rock. Right. No, no relationship. No relationship, except there is now. All right. Uh, but what I wanted to say is, um, uh, oh, so much has been said uh, about this. I'll, I'll start here and let's see where it goes. That, say, a Gandhi. Gandhi could lead India because he had been a lawyer in the British Empire, trained in British law, spoke English immaculately, spent 20 years in South Africa, right? Uh, and Martin Luther King had a PhD in, in uh, he had studied in, he, he knew how the white men talked and he knew how the black men talked. Now think about Barack Obama, you know, in a similar way, going up with a, uh, um, a white mother and um, uh, white grandparents, and in Kansas, and then in Hawaii, but also living in Indonesia for a while. And, and, and. So the current phrase for this, which I learned, is called code switching. Have you heard that phrase before? You must have. It's a big um, uh, podcast thing now. Code switching is when, especially when, say, an African-American talks one way, Oh. In oh, one right, setting, right, right. Oh. and another way, oh. in another right. setting. That movie, the movie where the policeman he convinces over the phone to talk to uh, David Duke of the Klu Oh, the Black Klansman. Yes. Uh huh. That's right. He's talking white over the phone. Yeah. Right. That's called now code switching, right. and it's a. Uh, so yeah. Moses, yeah. huh? Jews, every minority does it. Everybody does some form of code switching, depending on what co what company you're keeping. I mean, it also can be how you talk to your grand, how you talk to your grandparents versus how you talk to your friends. I mean, it's that simple. Yeah. Yeah, I just love the scene in airplane, the comedy air, airplane. When oh yeah. On, they're on the plane. There's two black women talking, and he says, "Hey, blah blah blah," and one guy comes up. He says, "I speak jive." That's right. That's right. I remember that. <laughs> um, yes, Marco. 
Well, if we're relating this to African-American slavery, I think it's speaking to that liminal space that so many illegitimate children, like Moses is almost like that, right? You Moses know, is... Slave owner and slave child, where you're, you know, then you're sort of raised in the palace, but you're raised as an underling in the palace because of your mother. That's right. So Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings, which I'm just reading about, uh, though their children... Uh, could advocate for themselves because they, they grew up in the house and they were, yeah, literate. And um, so Moses, maybe in order to be able to do this, you need a leader who <clears throat> can talk the language of power, knows how to go into Pharaoh's court. And knows how to move between those worlds. And knows how to move between those worlds. And it's really hard. It's very hard for Moses to move between those worlds. He doesn't have the Pharaoh's confidence, and he doesn't have the Israelites' confidence. Frederick Douglass, you see? Well, Frederick Douglass was an escaped slave, okay. uh, remarkable, yeah. who also, what a remarkable figure. Um, there was something, I mean, he drew people in. Yes. But also, he was uh, not trusted. And some, some right, right. You live a lonely existence in that sense. Um, where, where, where do you hang your hat? You know? Um, because on some level you're playing up to power to get that amount of power and the way Frederick Douglass became this curiosity. He was. He was a curiosity. such a right. tension in that. It's like he's powerful and he's a, you know, he's a black curiosity. Mm-hmm. Well, Cornel West talks about what happens when people like Douglass and others get the power. They then become the powerful who want to maintain their power. And so they don't necessarily, some do, but they don't necessarily continue to fight for the people because they're no longer the people. They're the powerful. Here we go. Very complicated. Oh my God, I was just reeling about reading about Daniel Ortega in Nicaragua. Do you remember when he was the hero in the 70s overturning the Somoza regime? Exactly. And he is as bad as any Somoza family member ever was now. It's tragic and predictable, and that's why we have this story. And it's again, it's forgetting the compassion. You know, the minute you leave that behind and you, you drink the poison of, of domination of others. Has anyone here read the Hunger Games trilogy or seen I the movie? Um, because my kids were reading it, so I read it, and I was completely captivated by it. Is that, is that? The rebel leader, the, 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 the president, President Snow, is um, a tyrant who understands exactly what he's doing. And da, 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 da. Meanwhile, there's a resistance led by a woman named uh, a Coin. I don't remember what her title is. And um, she, the hero of the Punger Games is, is this young girl named Katniss, who has a who's just a remarkable heroine. And when the rebellion finally succeeds and this horrible guy, Snow, is overthrown, the rest of the, the sort of the last part of the, of the trilogy, of the book, third book of the trilogy, shows Coin saying, I think I'm going to have to be the interim president until we've restored order. And it's horrible. And you realize... 
she goes. She, she's on the way. And the, the end of the book, I ruin it for all of you, um, um, Katniss is set to, who is the hero of the revolution, is set to execute publicly President Snow. And President, the new president is standing up on the podium. And she takes her arrow and she, and she shoots the new president through the heart. And, um, and uh, the book is not obviously a, uh, it's, it's not a happy, happy <laughs> book. It's amazing it's that they lovely. call it young adult literature. But um, it's compelling because then they say in sort of epilogue part, we don't know how long this period of goodwill is going to last, but let's see how long we can make it last as a new democracy has been <laughs> formed and, you know. Wow. Um, sorry, I love that yeah. movie. Yeah. I read, I read the book. I read the first book, but I haven't read the other. Well, it, my kids were the right age, so I was like reading along well, with it them. It feels to me I'm about that age. Yeah. And also, <laughs> the um, Muslim, uh, remember in Egypt when the... Uh, oh, in the Arab Spring. Arab uh, Spring, and oh, now that yeah, has just right. turned Right, right. How do you crack the, the sort of... the, the the, the, the foundations, the walls of established power. If you have a revolution, you can overturn it, but then we've seen the history of revolutions in our age. Uh, communism. I mean, uh, we are, it's... Hmm? Oh, sure, Myanmar, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, to watch the... To watch Aung San Suu Kyi, I think that's her name. Yeah. Oh, uh, so heartbreaking. And, oh, wow. But my dance teacher in college, who was uh, an, my inspiration, liked to talk about, had this parable she liked to tell that may have been a true story. I'm trying to remember because I was like 20 years old. And she would talk about how there was this asparagus patch and how this person didn't like asparagus and so tried to dig up all the roots. But asparagus, you know, every year it would come up. So finally, they decided to put asphalt over the asparagus pet. And then the asparagus cracked the asphalt. And this was her story to us about, about life, about letting, about life and the life force. And the, she, she got me on my path. Yeah. It, it seems that it's just very difficult to assume power without becoming a perpetrator, and I think that's just so much yeah. of the message of Jim. Well said. Could you hear what she said? Uh, it's, say, can you say those same words again, please? That it's difficult to assume power without automatically becoming a perpetrator, and I think so much of Judaism is about that message. How do we have power without the world being too much with us? I agree. I agree. And the, perp the perpetrator doesn't necessarily have to be overt perpetration. can just be abandoning the people. So it requires constant self-assessment, constant checking in with whether we are um, uh, worshipping idols, you know, whether we're uh, constant um, and to serve I am that which is becoming 
Um, and, and not just worshiping idols, but trying to become idols mm-hmm. as part of the worship. As part power trying is an idol. Project the vision of power and then become yeah. that. That's, that's the truth. Did you hear what? Mm-hmm. What did she say? She said power is an idol. I mean, mm-hmm. to be yeah. sought after and worshiped and maintained and sustained and, you know, how, how does one do that? So the way I like to say it is the means are the ends. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the ends can't justify the means no. unless our, how we do it is our end. Um, and that is obviously a very high-minded ideal. Um, but that would be the goal. So Joseph, Joseph uh, epitomized that because he took all power in Egypt, but he did it for a good cause to bring in all the grain so that when the seven years of famine came, they would have grain to feed the people. True, but we were here in the class where we actually read that text closely. He then, he had taken it from the people, but then he sells it back to them. And in the process, consolidates the entire land of Egypt under Pharaoh's ownership. So it's a confusing section, actually. But you're right, his intentions were good, but then... There were unintended consequences in the way that he consolidated power in Egypt at the same time. And one could argue, why is that necessarily bad? Mm-hmm. Yes, you could. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh huh. But there are consequences. Um, well, yeah. I mean, the, my projection is that he did that so that he could maintain his own power with Pharaoh. Um, right. Otherwise. Worse things might have happened, but, you know, to him <laughs> and to the people, maybe. When Moses grew up, he consolidated power so that he could take the Jews out of Egypt through the wilderness to the, to the gates of the Promised Land. He mm-hmm. had to have power to That's do right. that. That's right. But his power was used for the good of the people. Yep, yep. Moses is the epitome of the good shepherd. Um, or the good, powerful one. Mm-hmm. 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 Well, I mean, because he brought in Aaron and Miriam. I mean, it wasn't just, they each had their own role. They each had their own role. Let's read on. These are good reflections. Sometime after that, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his kinsfolk and witnessed their labors. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his kinsmen. He turned this way and that, and seeing no one about, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, he found two Hebrews fighting. So he said to the offender, Why do you strike your fellow? He retorted, And who made you chief and ruler over us? Uh, Uh, Who made you... um, No, no, no. uh, Chief and ruler. Shofet is judge. Uh, who made you chief and judge over us? And do you mean to kill me as you kill the Egyptian? Moses was frightened and thought, then the matter is known. And when Pharaoh learned of the matter, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh. He arrived in the land of Midian and sat down beside a well. So when word got out that Moses had murdered an Egyptian uh, uh uh, taskmaster. But it's interesting that so clearly the Hebrews 
were not seeing Moses in their favor. And, I mean, how... Right. Moses is, Moses is in between status. So, is, of course, they passed the word. I mean, the word got out. Well, if you're really working together, you would, no one would have known. That's right. But Moses is this anomaly. Moses is this in-between figure. There, right away, the Israelites are saying, who are you, big shot? And Pharaoh wants to kill him. Right. I mean, they say, they, obviously, they panicked. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what could be more obvious that Pharaoh didn't know a thing about Moses' existence? Pharaoh didn't know about Moses at all, even though he was underneath this roof. He probably never even saw him ever. Is that what this Possible. is? Possible. Uh, I don't know. Because look at it's like Or maybe there's another story you can tell that Pharaoh knew who Moses was, that his daughter had adopted, yeah. but because hey, it was You're his gonna go kill my taskmasters now? No, no, no. Because I was gonna say because we're all making this up, right? Because uh, Pharaoh cared about his daughter, just like uh, only the only only the, the the wickedest of the wicked, like King Herod, who killed all of his own children. So they, you know, uh, uh, but they love their family, right? Isn't that like a a, a classic? Yeah, the, even even the biggest biggest war criminal loves their family. Uh, maybe because so maybe he tolerated Moses until he had an excuse to like right. I don't know I'm just saying also yeah. maybe, maybe he, he thought just, Moses was Egyptian maybe maybe he was just oblivious maybe you know I mean the big powerful father goes to work comes home ignores his kids mm -hmm. keeps on working but then why does he want to kill Moses who is his daughter's adopted son for killing an Egyptian like were the laws of uh, murder that clear and, and I don't know it doesn't say. <laughs> well, I wanted to ask a question. The yeah. king of Egypt spoke and said, let's get rid of all the firstborn, right? All Males. the baby boys. Boys. Not just firstborn. Boy, well, the boys. Yeah. Well, through birth, right? Through the... Right, but it doesn't public. say kill all the firstborn boys. It says kill all, any boys, boys that are born. Right, right. Yeah. First, good point. Good point. Yeah. And then later on it talks about Pharaoh. Could Pharaoh now be his half-brother? Oh, because... Oh, he's no longer the... You mean this Pharaoh? Yes, this Pharaoh. Um, it's changed from king to Pharaoh. Oh, it alternates between king and Pharaoh in here as title. Okay. okay. Uh, but there is a question back at the very beginning of the part where it says a new king arose over Egypt uh, who did not know Joseph. Um, and the rabbis talk about that, and they say, was it a new king, or was it the same king who had changed? And they say, um, they tell a midrash, again, just to see how it ripped from the headlines, you know, think something's never changed, that, the, that Pharaoh's uh, supporters rose up against him um, and, and said, hey, these Jews have it too good, these, these Hebrews. And they deposed him. And then when he finally said, Okay, I'll do. I'll do. He gave in. They put him back on the throne, and that was a new king. That's not answering your question directly. But then, what's going to happen is while Moses is in Midian, it's going to say that that Pharaoh died, because all the people who sought to kill you 
have died, so you can go back now. Um, the prince of Egypt. <laughs> he grows up with another boy, doesn't he? Only in the movie. That's what I'm saying. In the, yeah. In the oh, movie. so in the movie called The Prince of Egypt, which is an extended midrash on this story, and a very thoughtful one. They're not like pulling... The, the, the consultant on the script was Bert Vysotsky, who's a professor of Midrash at JTS, right? So they wanted the movie to be a real Midrash, not just, you know, throw in a character from another Disney movie. Some, you know, Cinderella doesn't show up in this story. So, uh, so they answer the question of who a new king is that arises over Egypt by saying that Moses grew up in the palace as best friends with Pharaoh's son. And they do a whole elaborate thing in the movie right. that gives a human dimension. Boys growing up together. That when Moses returns, his best buddy in the palace is now on the throne. And so they really, but I recommend it, The Prince of Egypt. The, the, the only the, issue the, is that kids, sometimes you say, okay, so you know, we're going to study this story, if you know the story of Moses, hoping you remember a little something from Passover or whatever. And sometimes they say, oh yeah, I saw the movie. <laughs> well, but the good thing about The Prince of Egypt is that it, it's a legitimate yeah. telling, but right. it's not... But they the, don't know not all of that. No, they don't know that. That's the story they know. But it's a good story because the women characters get a lot more time in that movie than, than they do in the book here. Why, why do you I, I read the book. Watch it. It's an animated feature called The Prince of Egypt. You'll enjoy it. It's, it's, it's not just a cartoon, it's like, did you ever watch it? No. I, I really recommend it. We watch it every year at Passover. Oh. Uh, I'm sorry you have to go. I'm sorry I have to go too. I'm squeezing too much. Into Thanks for coming. Yeah. Were you going to say something, Bob? Uh, when you do your musical, let us know. Is yeah, it, yeah. Is Sometimes it, I write the book, and I'll write music. Is it by any yeah. chance on Netflix? I'm, it's either on Netflix, or I don't know, it's from DreamWorks, and it's, well, it's 20 years old, and I don't know. It's called The Prince of Egypt. Steven Spielberg produced it. Oh, okay. okay. <coughs> Where do you get another child of Pharaoh other than the daughter? They made that up. Okay. No, no, no. They, I don't remember No, no, no. They, 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 well, they didn't make it up. They say, in the next chapter, uh, Jethro tells him that or he learns that it's okay to go back to Egypt because everyone who sought him's death has died. And so he goes back, and so the presumption is that it's a son of that pharaoh who has now ascended to the throne. And so the assumption is that son is, was the peer of Moses's. And so they tell a story about how Moses knew the son who eventually... Okay. That's what happens. So that's why it's not... Um, it, 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 it fits. It's inferred. It's inferred, yeah. yeah. Let's read a little more. Uh, and he arrived in the land of Midian and sat down beside a well. So now we're on uh, uh, verse 16 on page 350. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. That sounds like a good folktale, doesn't it? <laughs> they came to draw water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. So the question is, how come the sons aren't doing this? Um, well, Rachel and Rebecca are both go down to the well, so it's, it may have been a function, but, okay. uh, Mo, but Moses is still surrounded by 
by women characters here. It's interesting, isn't it? Um, Shepherds came and drove them off. Moses rose to their defense. In other words, Moses... He's doing the opposite. He's doing what Rachel did. Oh. (laughs) Rachel watered... Rebecca. Oh, Rebecca. Right, Rebecca Mm -hmm. watered. Yeah. Um, But what this should remind you of is that now in the two little episodes we have about Moses, he has uh, risen to the defense of... Hebrew slave and struck dead the Egyptian taskmaster and now he has risen to the defense of these girls by the well uh, and uh, the, the brigands who are um, uh, uh, harassing them. Shepherds came and drove them off. Moses rose to their defense and he watered their flock. So these two episodes give us a sense immediately of maybe why God is going to choose Moses. The same way reason God chose Abraham. Because God is looking for people who are going to stand up and say, you know, what if there are innocent people there? Can't destroy Sodom. If you know, it seems like that's who God's looking for, to call. Um, yeah? Is Shepherd Maron? No, Shepherd is Ro'eh. Oh, um, that's from the the um, the uh, if you're remembering. Yeah, yeah. I have to look at it. Okay. It may be a synonym. Okay. Um, but ro'e is an interesting and beautiful word. Reish, iron, hay, because a re'a is a friend, and a ro'e is a shepherd, hmm. and it's the same letters. Right. So is Araya is a friend or a beloved. And Vahafta Lereecha Kamocha, love your neighbor as yourself. Um, so it's neighbor, friend, lover. It's a beautiful, beautiful word. And yet Aroe is a shepherd. So remember, this was a pastoral society. Uh, shepherding, you know, God is my shepherd, I shall not want. So the shepherd is a really beautiful, becomes a beautiful metaphor uh, for a loving, caring, nurturing relationship. Hashem Roi. Mm-hmm. Uh, when they returned to their father, Reuel. Now, um, there's an interesting phenomenon here which nobody really understands, which is that Jethro, Yitro, has, another, has two other names. Reuel, and Chovav. He's also called Yeter at one point. So who the heck is this guy? And why does he have four names? And why do the names keep changing? So in classic biblical academic scholarship, they're saying, well, this is the J writer, and this is the E writer. This is one thread and one... They may be right, for all I know, but it's immaterial because we want to... I want to hear this as a story, not as a uh, research paper in that sense. So, Reuel, what's interesting about him being called Reuel here is if you look in verse 17, Roim is shepherds. Reuel is, would mean shepherded by God. It's, it's Reish, Ayin, Vav. So, it seems like the father of these girls here is referred to as God, as a shepherd, someone who's shepherded by God. Do you see? 
um, he brought them to their father Ruel, and he said, how is it that you've come back so soon today? In other words, how did you finish your work so soon? And they answered, well, an Egyptian, so they think he's an Egyptian, rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And he said to his daughters, well, where is he then? <laughs> Why, did, did you leave the man? Ask him in, and yochal lechem, to, have, to break some bread. Moses consented to stay with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Tzipporah as a wife. What a nice thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and Tzipporah was going to save his life in, the, in chapter 4. So he's going to have his life saved again by a female character. I just want to point that out. Yes? Andre, you want to finish? She bore a son whom he named Gershom. For he said, I have been a stranger in a strange land. And that's that book that meant so much to so many of us, Stranger in a Strange Land. Yeah. yeah. I have a question way back um, uh, 17, but shepherds came and drove them off. So in this, in this moment, the shepherds who will have this what would you say, essence of taking care and being caregivers, now they've become brigands? These shepherds, yeah, so I guess I have to qualify what I just said, don't I? Oh well. Because, mm -hmm. um, yes, they, they have come, so everybody, but this comes up a lot in Genesis, mm -hmm. where the wells, the wells are precious, mm -hmm. and the water's limited. And these are women. You could add that, mm -hmm. but there are conflicts between Isaac and there, there are major conflicts over wells in Genesis. Where, and the well is a frequent place where something happens in Genesis mm -hmm. and here. So clearly in, that, yeah. in, in the land of Israel and uh, in, in, in the ancient Near East, who controlled the well? Who stopped up the well? Yeah. Was the well dry? You know, this is important mm -hmm. stuff. So, yes, there's this... Lawrence of Arabia story, you know, where he's taking water by the well, and then that desert tribe comes in and kills the right. person. Right. So lives. scarcity is a big issue here. Yeah. Every <coughs> Hagar, water. Hagar. Hagar Rebecca is by, uh, it, ha, the action happens by a well. Mm -hmm. Rebecca. Rebecca. Rachel. Rachel. Mm -hmm. That's right. They all, they all are linked to wells. That's, that's true. And then Joseph gets thrown into a pit into a that's well. dry. Dry a dry well, well. yeah. Um, and now Tzipporah meets by the well. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, there's um, meet me by the well. Somebody created a website uh, yeah. uh, um, for I think like a Jewish dating site that they called the oh, well. Cute. Yeah, I think so. And then Miriam's well. And then Miriam, of course. Yes. So water, oh, wells. And, and Moses is taken from the Nile. Well, I want to think about wells for a minute. I know. Uh, because I think there's a link here between the water that flows up from a well and again this feminine principle. Um, yeah. Well, you can't get a better metaphor for womb. No, for womb, for uh, for vagina, for you know uh, uh, the life flowing, all of that. Yeah. Beautiful. A long time after that, So a long time passes. The king of Egypt died. And now the Israelites were groaning under the bondage and cried out. And their cry for help from the bondage rose up to God. 
God heard their moaning and God remembered the covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And God looked upon the Israelites Vayeda Elohim. God took notice of them or God knew them. Right? Yeda is a very intimate that's knowing in the biblical sense it's like to really be conscious of and aware of. It's it's the knowing that is where you see them. You see the other person. You see the humanity or the divine the 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 essential life. You could do that again with an animal, not just with a human being. You could do it with a tree. Um and know it and know it. Um, so now everything's gonna turn. Uh, I find it interesting that the Israelites are groaning and crying out, but that their cry rose up to God and God heard and remembered the covenant. Does that mean God had been dormant? Forgetful. Forgetful? Attending to other matters? Something about this language really speaks to me in terms of what comes up for me is that um, our connection with God, that, that the Israelites must have also forgotten. And that's what a lot of the Midrashim say. That, um, but that the cry of their heart, the cry of the broken heart, reconnects you to your life force. Right? If you're just crushed, then you're depressed, you're, you're shuffling through your day, you're, 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 a, you're a beast of burden, as it were, again, not to insult animals, um, and you've lost your... And so a lot of the Midrashim say that the cry was what rose up to God, meaning that the Israelites had lost their connection with this principle of, of life. Uh, one, two, three. Um, well, the whole concept is that when you're depressed, is you have to go deeper in, into your tears before you can go up. And it's like the whole principle of addiction, uh, which you hold on, you know, you're holding on to whatever you have, and it's like you get to the point of, I, ha- I, I have nothing more. You cry out, not even from trying to accomplish anything, but because you have to. It just, it just comes out and awakens you to life again, breaks your heart open. Yeah. Uh, it just uh, speaks to me about that human condition that when things are going well, we don't keep that constant remembrance of our place with the divine. And then when we lose that connection to everything's going well, and indeed we're smashed under great tribulations, unfortunately that's when we start getting one-pointed about our relationship with that which can protect, you know, maybe come and help us or be with us. Not God that's going to come in and say, well, I'm going to fix this for you, but that you're going to make a connection again. You're going to reconnect again to that which you have forgotten. Thank you. Reconnect again to that which you have forgotten. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a nice commentary here 
uh, on the phrase, God remembered his covenant. And the comment is not that he had forgotten it, but that now the opportunity had come for the fulfillment of his merciful purposes. So until the people were ready to let God in, God, as it were, wasn't present. Does that make sense? Uh, you know, and that's our truth. You know, we can be walking through the most extraordinary landscape, and if we're not present to it because of our, uh, our for whatever, whatever's closed us down, it might as well not exist for the purpose of our path towards redemption. But then when something cracks us open, the world can come pouring in to us again. Wow. I just realized because so often it's when someone, when someone loses a dear one, yeah. that's when the crack, when you go through that horrific grief is when you, you either... It either, either, it either, Clo yeah, yeah, you either close down again or you realize that I'm not in control of the universe, I can't control life and death, and my only option here is to be in the river of life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, a, I mean, I know for myself that's really what the death my son brought to me. Amazing. Yeah. Well, and that's always to your credit, Miriam, for, for being willing to walk that valley. But you know. that's where I really relate to how far you have to go in order to get there. It's like, it's, it's... And the valley every, of the shadow of death. Yes, yeah. the valley of the shadow of death. And it's interesting, you can even, I know it's a support group, and it was clear where that was, my daughter and I both experienced, she was in Texas and I was here, and the support groups is like, you go and people are so honored, they're, their story goes over and over and over right, again. Right, right. And, and it's like there's no healing there. Right, so right. So it's like you have to let the story go. Yes, they're gone, they're dead. And you're here. So with that comes then a deeper memory. Mm -hmm. A deeper memory which they somehow had in their story. They're remembering something. I want to say something that uh, uh, Aviva Zornberg was pointing out as well in what I was reading, which is that, and I'll relate it, last week we were talking about how Jacob Israel, that maybe one way to understand his two names is his constant fluctuating between an aggrieved, you know, bereaved, um, resentful, my life has been short, long, and hard, you know, and Israel, who has a, vision, a larger sense of, having, of wrestling with all of this and not giving up to it, right? Back and forth. And certainly the story of the Israelites over the next four books is an, a story of ambivalence, primarily. <laughs> they want to leave, they don't want to leave, they want to go back, they want... They and get angry. They they're, get angry. They, we're, you know, they're basically drag kicking and screaming through life. <laughs> and um, why am I saying that? Um, oh, be, I don't know, because they're us, you know, fluctuating through uh, uh, um, a sense of um, aggrieved victimhood uh, and powerlessness 
and then into this more graced understanding of um, accepting and traveling through this landscape of life. Uh, I'm working at it. Um, and God knew, took notice of it. God knew them. Um, so now it's two o'clock, so we only got through two chapters. <laughs> uh, because it, doesn't, it just keeps getting better, I'll tell you. Um, I will... Um, I turn everything to four. Yeah, well, we, yeah, we need to keep talking to four. <sighs> yeah. There's a reason why we, this is our story. It's everything. It's the story of being a person. I just want to give thanks that we're blessed with this story so that we can keep reflecting on how to be human beings and what it means to what it means to live li live in connection with the, that which is becoming and unfolding. And I'm very grateful that we have the story of Exodus to remember every year and keep uh, keep that story alive into the generations. I, I mm -hmm. see now a little bit more how important that is in helping us to, to remember who we are in the long run. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Yes, yes. Very good.